Welcome to another edition of the In Search SEO Podcast, where we paint the town red with search marketing insights. This week, we chatted up with CRO specialist and table tennis champion, David Hyman, as we get into which traffic sources convert at the highest rates, site speed, UI, UX, which technical elements can kill your conversions if not optimized correctly and what tests to run and how to create surveys to ensure your conversion program is on the right track. Plus, we take a look at PageRank and links and why Google wants to move away from both. I am your host, Morty Oberstein, and I am joined by the great humanitarian, a really charitable, altruistic human being, Sapir <laughs> Carabello. Wow, altruistic human being. What did I do to get such a compliment? I was running out of time coming up with what I say in my intro, and it sounded <laughs> oh, good. Oh, thank you. Oh, right. I was trying to find something a little bit funnier, it. a little more edgy, mm-hmm. but I thought I'd just be sarcastic instead. Lovely. Right. I can always trust you. You can always trust me to come with something good. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> That's why they pay me the big bucks. Oh, boy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm tired. I'm always tired. I always feel tired. <laughs> I, have a, I should see a doctor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just like, yeah, we just get more sleep, dude. Everyone are tired. I know. Okay. A um, lot of energy. A lot of things to talk about. Let's get ready. Let's get revving. Um, first and foremost, do not forget, we put out a new episode of the In Search SEO podcast each and every Tuesday, you can find it on the Rank Ranger blog. You can find it on Stitcher. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on SoundCloud. And, of course, you can subscribe on iTunes. Um, also, do not forget, when you're looking to track and compare your conversions to all sorts of data sets, which data sets let your imagination run wild. Rank Ranger is there for you with the latest white label reports available in abundance with custom data metric comparisons for you. Okay, we've got a great show for you today. <laughs> it's like my least favorite part of the show. We have a great show for you today. I had a nice chat with David Hyman all about CRO. He has a ton of amazing case studies to talk about, so stay tuned. You definitely don't want to miss it. I learned a ton. You'll learn a ton. It'll be great. Um, but before we get into that, big news. Huge news. Earth-shattering news. So big, so gargantuan, that I want to double down on an idea I've had for a long time. So, get ready to place your SEO bets. The jackpot will be divided equally among the winning tickets. This has you pretty revved up, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I need something to rev me up because the coffee didn't work this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, you didn't get excited when you saw this? You saw this topic mm-hmm. on the agenda for this podcast. You're like, mm-hmm. wow, so cool, amazing. I was so excited. I just couldn't sleep at night. Really? Mm, no. You sound like you're being sarcastic. How did you figure that out? I don't know. I'm a, <laughs> I, I am a great judge of tone and character. <laughs> Good to know. That's right. You can't fool me mm-hmm. more than twice. <laughs> okay. Sh- should we share the great news then? Go for it. Okay. Um, a former Googler, Googler, a former Google engineer, or he could be a Googler, whatever you want to call them, um, said... Drum roll. Right? Okay. Google doesn't use page rank anymore. <gasps> Collective freak out begins now. <laughs> By the way, I didn't really hear you freak out. Ah! Okay. How was that for a freak out? Harumph. Harumph. <laughs> By the way, that was an Easter egg for uh, all you Mel Book friends out there, by the way. Moving on. 
no more pop culture references in abundance. Thank you. Okay, minimal. Well, we're still going to have them. We're just going to go faster over them. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, okay. So, for real, okay, Google has said that PageRank is alive and well. Which, how could that be? Because now a former Google engineer is saying PageRank is not alive and well. Hmm. Okay. So, this engineer person, this fellow... Um, he qualified things a bit because, you know, first you have, you have your dramatic statement and then you have to sort of roll it back a little bit with something that makes more sense. Um, but he said that Google did kill PageRank, but it replaced it with something very, very similar. And even its name is similar. So when Google says that there is still PageRank, I guess it kind of makes sense because everything is so similar. Which I, for one, don't understand why Google couldn't have just said that. Hey, you know, we don't have PageRank anymore. We have something similar. Um, it's so similar that it even has a similar name. Like, how hard is that to say? Because that guy said it pretty clearly. <laughs> so, okay, but it doesn't matter, okay? It's not important why Google did or didn't do that. Okay, it does matter a little bit, maybe more than a little bit. But let's not beat a dead horse, which is a horrible horrible visual when you think about that you have to wonder like what kind of sick person beats a horse and then what kind of sicko 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 beats a dead horse and what kind of person uses that in a fr- like how did that become a phrase yeah that's something to google how did don't beat a dead horse how did that be like who was beating dead horses that that became a phrase i don't want to know i feel like seinfeld right now <laughs> Okay, um, let's just go with like let's let sleeping dogs lie because that's that's better. Oh, right? much better. Yeah, mm-hmm, it is. Let's <laughs> leave them alone. They're sleeping. Right. Okay. Sleeping. <laughs> <sighs> now it doesn't matter. Why? Okay, so I'm being a little bit clickbaity. I I get it. Okay, but page rank, to quote Jim Moore, are you kidding me? Page rank, total pop culture sports reference that no one gets except for old sports fans. I get it. Mm-hmm. I'm using it anyway. Okay, do your thing. Okay. Page rank? Are you kidding me? Page rank? Don't talk about page rank. Okay, whether it's a new page rank, whether it's the same old page rank, are we seriously talking about something that's like 20 years old? I, I, I'm sorry, okay? At an SEO event I was speaking at recently with Eli Schwartz, who gave a fantastic presentation, he mentioned that he lives in the, uh, in the Bay Area, and he loves texting out, not texting, testing out, um, Google has these self-driving cars that they're they're working on, and they mm-hmm. test them out in his neighborhood. And he likes jumping in front of them to see if they'll stop or not. Yeah, it's a little bit you know masochistic, mm-hmm. but yeah, fine. So he wants to see if they'll <laughs> stop or not. But he mentioned he mentioned that the the auto self-driving cars that Google is developing can tell the difference if a person jumps in front of the car or if a squirrel jumps in front of the car. Mm-hmm. So why am I telling you this? I don't know. Could you really mean to tell me that the the search engine, the company that can create a car that knows if 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 a squirrel has jumped out in front of the car versus a person, is still relying on PageRank like it's two thousand and six? Does that make any sense to you? Does that make any sense to anybody? <laughs> no. So why do we why why do we still think this way? Please, I'm shaking my head. You can't see it, but I'm, I'm, I'm shaking my head. We are in an era of AI and machine learning and entity-based understanding. And we're still like, wow, Google's still using PageRank or something like it, like it matters. Wait, you said you were placing an SEO bet or something happening. How does this play in? Okay. Now for the controversy. Ooh. Now's where we get all juicy. Because yeah. what I said before was not controversial enough. <laughs> It's not that controversial. Okay. Here's where I'm doubling down. Google is running away from things like PageRank as fast as it freaking can. 
as fast as it can. It wants nothing to do with that stuff anymore. Explain. Okay, so first off, okay, as I mentioned before, you don't think Google's ability hasn't evolved in the last 20 years, even if they're still using the exact same page rank element, right, algorithm? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changed? Like, you're, oh, we're just, we're, no, obviously not. So does it really, you have to ask, like, okay, so let's say they're still using page rank or something similar to it or not, whatever it is. To what extent does it still matter? Mm. Right? How, what, what's its level of influence? How is it being? How does it interact with all the other signals that Google has? Okay, but that that being aside, okay, and even if these methods have evolved, which I'm sure they have, okay, this is not where Google wants to be. It does not want to be talking about PageRank or things similar to PageRank or like PageRank or it's the same name as PageRank, but it's not PageRank. It was married to PageRank, thrice divorced from PageRank, and then remarried to PageRank. Okay, Google does not want to be. It doesn't want, and maybe it wants us to be talking about it, but they don't want to be talking about it. Which maybe is why they like saying, yeah, yeah, PageRank is still there, whatever. They don't want to get into this. Why? Okay. Because links will not, and this is where I'm putting my money down. Here's my SEO bet. Links in the next five years, maybe 10. I'm not good at time. So between five, 10, or 50 years from now. Okay. Being very specific. Very specific. Very specific. <laughs> okay. <laughs> links will not be nearly as important as they are today. Okay. And, and, I'd rather not get stuck in the idea, is there a page rank? Is there something new? Is there not something new? What is a new version? Has to factor with the overall algorithm because Google wishes it could throw page rank in the garbage. You're crazy. That's true. Mm-hmm. But I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that's possible, but I am and I'm not. Okay? Links, okay, the holy grail of SEO are an indirect ranking signal, folks. Okay? They, they only point to page quality. They don't say that this page is intrinsically a solid qualitative page. It's it's an indirect signal, right? In other words, if, oh, if everybody's linking to this page, it must be good. Okay. Do you remember Pogs? What? Yeah, in the 90s, like a big thing, like these little like um, discs and you had to flip them over. Okay. It's a a fad. Everyone was into it, right? But it was stupid. It was a fad. Okay. Whatever fad you can possibly think of, at a certain point, everyone's into it, right? But it's stupid. Correct? You're like, oh, you, two minutes after the fat ends, you're like, holy crap, I like that. How embarrassing. I'm so embarrassed. I used to have a massive collection of pogs. Really? Massive. Okay. I'm so embarrassed. I wasted all my parents' money on that. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> let them spend their money on me. They love me. <laughs> they didn't love me so much, but it's okay. They just bought me, they just bought me pogs. <laughs> they said, here, we don't care. Just buy pogs. Leave us alone. <laughs> All right, we are totally off the cliff. I just drove this thing like 50 miles an hour off the cliff. Okay. <laughs> the idea is that links don't intrinsically tell you if something's qualitative or not, or, or something's quality or not. They just point to it, right? Okay, everyone's linking to this page. It must be good. But you don't intrinsically know that. You just It's, a, it's an indirect signal, okay? Everything Google is doing is about having a conceptual, qualitative, intrinsic understanding of content of a site, of a page, so that so that it doesn't have to rely on indirect ranking signals like links anymore. Okay, and and, and I think it's again a, a matter of focus. And I've been banging on this drum for a while. Banging on a drum is a much better phrase than beating a dead horse, by the way. Because you can beat a drum. Just shouldn't beat a dead horse. You shouldn't beat any horse. Okay. Everything 
Okay, it's about this conceptual understanding. And again, I think it's just we're a little bit off in how we're focusing. I know people get all worked up when someone says links aren't important. And rightly so, by the way, because I'm not saying that. Links are very, very important in 2019. I just wish we get a little bit less excited about a notion that PageRank still lives and more excited at what's happening around us. And that, and that is being Google's drive away from indirect signals because its focus is on machine learnings and entities, which is a very, very, very fast and strong drive away from indirect ranking signals. And again, I'll say it one more time. Links are indirect ranking signal. Everything is Google's focus. Everything we talk about, you know, AI, user intent, machine learning, all these things, stand in sharp contradistinction to links as a ranking signal. I just want people to understand that. Like they, you can't be like gung ho, Google's understanding entities, and then say links are going to be as important as they are, you know, ten years from now. That those two things are a contradiction. They don't work. Okay. So I put any amount of money on it. This is what Google is trying to do more than anything. Why more than anything? Okay, so PageRank came out 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And it was, it was novel. No one was doing anything like it before, and it really set Google apart from everyone else. Correct? Right. Right. Okay, AI and machine learning, okay, the intrinsic understanding of, of, of content is the new PageRank. In other words, PageRank was super novel, right? It was so big, no one was doing it. Now everyone is doing that, right? Everyone's mm -hmm. using links, blah, 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 right, blah, blah. Right. Okay, it's not novel anymore. Okay, so Google knows it needs something new. It needs something to set itself apart again from everybody else. It needs something that it, Google can say and focus on. Okay, this is what makes us completely different and completely better than anyone else. No one's in the same league as us anymore. Now, I understand no one's in the same league in terms of everyone goes to Google. Google does show better results. But I mean structurally. Like, for example, Bing has very, very, very advanced AI. Very, very advanced machine learning that it uses. Okay, yeah, its results aren't as good or whatever it is, okay? But in terms of the, the, the foundational structure, Google's focusing on AI. Bing's focusing on AI. Bing is very advanced AI. It makes sense. Like it's based off Microsoft. Like it's not a slouch mm -hmm. when it comes to this. Google knows that it's in a very, very, very tight race in terms of not in terms of who shows the better results, who's got the bigger market share of search, but who's going to have the, the 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 structure, the foundation, the core to keep doing that in the years going forward. So in order to do that, it has to win. You know, the space race, fifty years, right? Big celebration, fifty years if we land on the moon. This is this is the um, the AI race. This is the search AI race, whatever you want to call it. Okay, this is a race. And Google knows it's time for a reset so that it can come up with something novel so they can maintain dominance for the next 20 years from now. Google's been novel for 20 years. Why? Because it had something unique and it built off that. It now needs to reset, build something unique again, which is why it's focusing on AI machine learning to make advancements there so that it can, it could be dominant for the next 20 years. Okay, speaking of races, by the way, Okay. Okay. Winning conversions is like a race. <laughs> and it's all about the right pace at the right distance. So here is David Hyman to share his CRO knowledge with you. By the way, awesome segue, huh? Mm-hmm. Right? Totally. That you know, searches like a race Top and notch. you know, conversions are like a race. Amazing. Good. Yeah. Cut one. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the In Search SEO podcast interview series. Today, we go into the wide world of CRO conversion rate optimization with table tennis champ Dave Hyman of the Clearwater Agency out of Australia. Welcome. Hey, Morty. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Good, good, good. My, my pleasure. So I have to ask about the uh, table tennis champion thing. 
Uh, look, when you do your LinkedIn profile, you've got to stand out. And I have been known to be quite a table tennis champion in the office. But um, I did get questioned <laughs> yeah. about that by a client, actually, who um, challenged me to come in. And he may very well have beaten me. So I might need to update to like a reigning champ or, you know, runner up or something like that. Right. So in your, in your mind, you're a table tennis champ. That's right. All absolutely. Right. That's, all, that's all that counts, by the way. <laughs> exactly. That in the Olympics, I guess. Okay. Um, so let, let's get started. Let's just get everybody caught up on the on the same on the same page. Since this is by the fir- way the first time we're talking about CRO on the In Search SEO podcast, we've been almost exclusively focused on either content marketing or SEO. So catch us all up for those who don't know what CRO is, what is it, and how does it differ from from good old SEO? Yeah, cool. So it's really interesting because um, obviously I'm a fan of the podcast and I listen and everything you guys talk about from an SEO element is still really useful. So SEO, for those who don't know or haven't listened to the podcast, is <laughs> pretty much the, the process of getting organic traffic from search engines such as Google. So the way that conversion rate optimization, CRO, uh, differentiates from that is it's more the process of increasing the amount of website visitors who complete a desired goal or action. So for example, an e-commerce website, um, that's pretty straightforward. It would be making a purchase, buying a product. Um, on a lead generation website, that would be something along the lines of filling out an inquiry form, making a phone call, signing up to a newsletter or something along those lines. So a conversion is normally the desired action and the goal um, is kind of what we we call that when we're doing data analysis. And then the conversion rate is the rate at which your traffic converts those goals. So in essence, I guess SEO, SEO helps you draw the traffic into your website and then CRO helps improve the rate at which you convert them. Okay, so... Let's talk about conversion rates for a second. So again, since we're, we're building up slowly, is there a sort of baseline of what a good conversion rate looks like? Is that is it does it exist all together? Is it a per niche thing, per site thing, per industry thing? Let us know. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those contentious ones that there are so many data sources reporting on so many different conversion rates. I've got a pretty straightforward one, e-commerce websites globally. From through all the data that I've had a look at, they average out at about 2.3% is the conversion rate and then lead generation websites. So again, not e-commerce websites uh, anywhere from 3.5 to 4.5. And honestly, there's so much data out there. I can't even give that a specific, um, a specific number. I have to give a, a bit of a range. So what, what happens with conversion rate optimization is you're exactly right. There are so many different industries and so many different people that convert in so many different ways that it's impossible to have that averaged out. That's just a guideline for us to look at. So when, we try and get our heads around conversion rates of a website. We actually don't try to set up baselines because every single website is so niche and so customizable and so different from one another that we just want to see what their baseline is at the moment with what their conversions are and how we can improve that. And every single website can be improved, whether or not it's just a slight improvement on one page that effectively affects the whole entire conversion rate. So, yeah, I mean, 2.3 for e-commerce, 3.5 to 4.5 for lead gen is a rough guideline. But outside of that, you know, we've seen outliers of websites converting at 20%. We've seen websites that are converting at 0.05. So it just depends what they're up to at the moment. And we just try and improve from there. Yeah, that makes a lot of good sense. I mean, look, you could be an e-commerce site and be in one competitive landscape. You could be an e-commerce site in a completely different competitive landscape. And I'm sure that impacts your conversion rates. Yeah, completely right. I'll, I'll give you a really quick example. People that are in the real estate industry for lead generation websites tend to have really high conversion rates because it is something that people are looking to do and they need to inquire. And it's kind of one of those experiences whereby you can get a little bit of information online, but you really need to talk to a realtor or you need to speak to somebody with expertise. So a lot of the time, 
people will go to a website with the idea that they want to make an action immediately as opposed to an e-commerce website, which we'll get into a little bit later, but giving over your credit card details is a completely different kettle of fish for the psyche. So yeah, there's completely different industries out there that convert differently and it's, um, it's really interesting to, to gather that data. That's actually really curious. I'm wondering, does something like, let's say, a car or a big purchase, do those convert better? Or there, I mean, rephrase that a little bit more um, professionally. Is there a higher conversion rate for sites where they're offering, you know, uh, major purchases, you know, boat, car, house, that sort of thing versus your everyday product? I mean, it, it's kind of a more involved process, isn't it? I mean, buying, um, you know, uh, a packet of cards off the internet for $2 is something that somebody kind of feels like there's no risk and it's not going to you know, eat out of their pocket too much. So you tend to see that actually convert higher because it's such an easy perishable item. But when you're talking about like a, a home or a car or something really involved, you know, it might be like a really expensive watch. Um, normally you would think that they convert a lot worse, but we've actually had cases where they convert quite highly because one, it might not be an e-commerce website, so it might be an inquiry. So somebody wants to learn more about it. But then secondly, because they've done the research and they've gone to the website and they're already prepared to make a big purchase, they convert a lot higher. Whereas somebody who's looking for some of those cheaper items might just be scouring the internet for anything. They've just stumbled on the website and it's not a decision that they really wanted to make here or there. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Again, there is no you know, given answer here. Um, all websites convert very differently from one another. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I was thinking. If I were going to buy a boat, when I buy my yacht one day, I'm going to figure that if I'm going to go to a website to buy a yacht, which I'm not sure you'd actually would go to a website to buy a yacht, but because I know nothing about buying yachts, I'm pretty sure that when I go to buy a yacht, I'm going to do all my research beforehand and then finally go to the site and just buy it. But what do I know about buying yachts? I mean, you know, it's you've, you've got a fair point there by saying you want to go do your research and then you might just land on a website and get a deal. But then there are people out there that like to touch and feel and be involved in it. And, you know, some people like to still deal with cash as opposed to a credit card. And there's so many elements out there of people with their transactional purchase behavior that it's really difficult. And, you know, now that everybody has a computer in their pocket every single day, the, the increase of e-commerce uh, conversions is slowly but surely coming along and you know who knows where we'll be in 10 years hopefully i come back on the podcast and we talk about it <laughs> so it, what it boils down to is it's complicated because people and their money basically correct right, exactly right. <laughs> okay so from an seo per, as an as an seo person i have to ask um, when it comes to traffic are all traffic sources equal when it comes to crl to conversions right I'm, I'm hoping that search traffic converts better than let's say social traffic being an seo person yeah yeah yeah, yeah cool it's a really good question so I guess the question is, uh, do all traffic sources have an equal sort of share in conversions? And the answer is no. Um, is there a particular traffic source that outperforms the rest? That's also really difficult to answer. So <laughs> again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's different for every business. So I'll give you a really quick example. We we have like a um, audio and DJ equipment client that we work for. Really interesting industry, quite sales focused. So they like to have their yearly sales or you know end of financial year. And we actually send out four emails a year for them. So we don't do many EDMs for clients, but for this particular client, it makes sense. But through those emails, they convert, this is an e-commerce website, mind you, at an average of 32% through their emails. So that is baffling. It's, it's That's crazy. crazy. I don't, well, That's unbelievable. Exactly. So when you think of the rest of their traffic normally converts around 2.5 to 3% as an e-commerce store, 32% is, is just out of this world. I would send reason, emails out every hour. Well, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> The reason for this is that their audience um, is almost 
I guess, trained to know that these four times a year, they're going to have their biggest sales and they almost know that this is the time to buy. So it has a really weird effect on their analytics, as you can imagine, because it's quite a big wave for those four periods, but it actually hurts them throughout the rest of the year, but they make so much money in these four periods that they don't care. So then when you go look at their data and you look at, you know, email um, traffic sources converting anywhere up around 30% while the rest of them at 2%, well, of course that's outperforming the rest, but that doesn't mean that email necessarily converts for every single organization or business. So, you know, when, when we talk about conversion rate optimization, this is something that I've been looking into a lot recently. We coined the term CRO because we were talking about conversion rates. We're trying to improve conversion rates. Well, what I believe we actually do in our practice is something along the lines of business revenue optim- optimization, which could be considered bro, which I've gotten some feedback for <laughs> from the audience, and that was interesting. But the reason I say that is because CRO is pretty tunnel vision. We're just looking at conversion rates. We're not trying to do that as conversion rate optimization experts. What we're actually trying to do is, yeah, of course, we're looking to improve the, improve the conversion rate, but we're also trying to improve how they convert, improve abandoned cart rates. We're trying to improve the average basket size, so the average amount that somebody's spending. We're trying to improve the quality of the inquiry that's coming through like a lead generation website. So even though the conversion rate may very well be going up, we're not always trying to look at that as the only metric. And this is where I sort of come back to everybody has different audiences. Everybody has different traffic sources. All we're trying to do is we're trying to find the best return on investment from those. And we're trying to make this business revenue, I guess. So that's why I sort of bring up business revenue optimization. So to answer your question, yeah, different traffic sources normally convert better than others. I can confirm with you organic normally converts a little bit better than a paid campaign. Oh, yeah. Referral traffic is normally extremely good quality <laughs> as it's, you know, somebody hyperlinks straight to the exact page that they want. But there are just so many external factors playing on this that it's really difficult to pinpoint which one is the best converter. And um, as a business, you should really be trying to gain as much knowledge of all of the different traffic sources to figure out which one works best for you. Right, and that's a good point about it's it's about making re- growing revenue, not about converting and optimizing your conversions. Much the way that search is not about ranking number one on the SERP, if no one clicks on your site, it's kind of pointless. Exactly. Other than brand awareness, you can give me that answer. I understand that. Don't want to jump on me. I get it. So if we're going to talk about CRO and conversions, I have to bring up you know the two cliche words that are always brought up when you talk about conversion. That's the marketing funnel. Where does CRO fit in at each part of the marketing funnel? Um, you know, what, or let me, let me ask it this way. What are some inhibitors of conversions at each level of the marketing funnel? And from a conversion perspective, is there one part of the funnel that's more important than the other one? I'm assuming you're going to say, oh, it's the bottom part of the funnel right before they make the conversion. Or I'm, I'm, actually, I'm not assuming you're going to say that. I would assume a lot of people would think that, but is it actually true? Yeah, I mean, marketing funnels are interesting too because, again, there's so many different marketing funnels and so many different ways people perceive these. So It's also a fun word to say because I, I always imagine a giant funnel, people spinning down it and then, right. Then, right, not, then they buy it. Not like a streamline straight through it. No, I mean like an actual funnel, like a, like a giant slide that you funnel through it. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, I, that's my, my weird association to marketing funnel. <laughs> so you no, know. you're completely right. It, it's, a, it's a weird analogy, but I guess from my point of view <sighs> – Marketing funnels are interesting in that sense because there are so many different um, restraints and different things that are happening to people when they're trying to convert through a customer journey. Um, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have conversion rates down at two, two point five percent. So I wanted to give you a really good example. I actually used to um, run a, a drumstick business. I used to import Amer- American hickory from you guys over in the U.S. and I used to send it to China and then I used to distribute it around the world. It was a company called Collision Drumsticks and. Um, 
what I want to do is I want to take you through like a little bit of a process for somebody to buy there. So let's just say we go through a Google search and we have some Google ads um, on there. We're ranking page number one. I did rank page number one for a few of those keywords over here in Australia, just FYI. Nice, nice. <laughs> Very good. Um, and, you know, we've got Then you've succeeded, like, by the way. You've ranked number one. Your job is done. There we go. I'm done. That's it. Um, so when we look at the copy of the ads, is it appealing? Are there spelling errors in the ad? Does it look like something that can resolve a problem? Because at the end of the day, that's all we're trying to do with a website. We're resolving somebody's issue that they have. So, you know, straight away, are the ads appealing? Are there any spelling errors? So that's straight at the top of the funnel. Look at the page ranking in Google. Has it actually met my expectations as a result? Was it something that I was looking for? I was looking for something slightly different. I had so many customers coming to my website and obviously looking for chicken drumsticks as opposed to American <laughs> chicken drumsticks. So, you know, straight away, that already affects the traffic that's coming through. Um, when you have a look at, you know, the home page, for example, what information's above the fold? Have we clearly labeled our unique sales proposition, you know, or is there no unique sales proposition and is somebody going to bounce straight away? Is there a prominent search bar? Here's, here's a really quick one for everybody out there with an e-commerce store. If you have a website that doesn't have a prominent search bar, you're just hurting yourself. Uh, search bars convert normally four times better than website visits without using search bars. So make it really prominent, make it really um, bold and in your face. But, you know, menu navigation, is that easy to use? Again, click through to the product page. Do I have security badges on the website? Do I have any social proof or testimonials? Do I have payment icons that are referring to Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Afterpay, ZipPay? All of these things here on every single stage of the website are extremely important to achieving that end goal, which is a conversion. So is there a point in the, in the funnel that I'd say is more crucial than the other? No, I would say every single element is holistically just as important as the other one because anybody can drop off at any point in the funnel or any point in their user experience and you are trying to prevent that by all means to try and get them all the way through to the end product and then click on an either like an inquiry button or to click you know purchase at the end of a transaction and then your job is done so no i don't think that there's any particular point in a funnel i think everything is just as crucial as the other that was prolifically actionable that was awesome that was great yeah, you. you should do you should make like a cartoon out of that exactly. like an, infogra I, an infographic as we call them in, in the digital world <laughs> case study i should probably i should probably do that no that's nice that was really nice um so <laughs> there's a lot of layover or crossover overlapping between seo and cro if you want to get to the on-page level so you know technical optimization ui ux let's talk that for a quick bit when it comes to cro which is more important or which would you focus on first you have your ui you have your ux you also have technical specifications like your 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 load speed right page speed that sort of thing from a conversion perspective, what becomes more important? Is it more your design, your UX, or is it you start off with your technical specifications first? Yeah, this is this is an awesome question um, because UX and CRO are so hand in hand. Yeah. With so many similar elements to one another. Because in the SEO, the answer is going to be, oh, no, well, you got to do page speed first because there's no point that if your page doesn't load, no one's going to get to it, which I, I get that. Yeah. Right. So that's an interesting point because I would actually say, if you had asked me this six months ago, I'd probably say the same thing. I'd probably say, you know, if you don't have a, if you've got a page speed of 30 second load time, somebody's not going to get to your website. But I've actually found on websites that people that want something, people that want a particular service or a product, and specifically they want it from this brand or from this business, people will go through hell to get through there. They will go through a terrible load speed. They'll go through um, some of the custom code on the website breaking. They'll go through... 
20 light box pop-ups before they can finally actually put through something. They'll go through hell before they actually get to a conversion. Whereas with UX, there are elements in the user experience that just completely make it impossible for somebody to convert. And I'll give you a really quick example, actually. We, um, we work with a Swedish watch company here in Australia. So they import Swedish watches, distribute them around Australia. Uh, we did some analysis for them about six months ago when they first came on board and we found out that their mobile traffic converted at 0.05. So horrible. Like wow. their mobile traffic was basically non-existent. So after doing a little bit more digging with their team and just getting to know them and understanding what they do as a business, we found out that nobody had looked at their mobile website for six months internally. <laughs> like they just, they just hadn't looked at it. And that's crazy in itself, but I understand, you know, people get involved, there's the day to day. So, you know, we obviously went, cool, well, we're going to have a look into this. So when you went to make a purchase, it actually triggered a light box window that popped up on desktop uh, that gave you a 10% offer. Pretty, pretty standard stuff. Lots of people do it. Um, I, I think the jury's still out on them, but anyway, this one for a 10% offer, I didn't think was worthwhile anyway, but it seemed to work fine on desktop. However, on mobile, when we got to the, um, to the mobile page, what happened is that the design of the actual pop-up took up the whole entire screen, but outside any device that would allow you to actually exit the pop-up. So, so you're there was stuck. No, yeah, you're, you're stuck. Totally there stuck. is no to go. So there was no way to exit other than leave the website completely, basically. So basically, we got to the point where we were like, look, we just need to remove this and this will open up the floodgates. And it was pretty straightforward. I mean, there were thousands of other issues on the website, but that was just something that was just absolutely mis. mis you know, miscommunicated internally. Uh, they missed it completely. And, you know, that absolutely killed their conversion. So from my point of view, yeah, you know, like all the technical aspects of a website need to be functional and they need to be working. And the worse that they are, the more difficult it is to convert. But from a user experience point of view, if you, if you can't actually move through the process to get to the checkout or to get to the inquiry form or to get to a newsletter sign up, sign up or whatever it is on the website you're trying to achieve, it's impossible to convert from there. And I think that that is probably just slightly outweighing the, the technical aspect, I'd, I'd say. Keep a case is coming, by the way, and that's a great case. By the way, that's a that's a penalty, right? Interstitial penalty. And not that yeah. Google actually does anything with that. But technically speaking, that's not really allowed, which makes good sense <laughs> because you can't exit the box. I should have probably I mean, asked. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I feel really bad for them because they're really lovely people. They've got a, um, a couple of in-house developers who just completely missed the ball and they owned up to it straight away. It happens. Fixed it and, and let's put it this way, man. They're um, you know converting it about sixty percent better than they were um, last year. So you know what, what's done is done, and we're moving forward. That, that's why they're a watchmaker, and you're a digital marketing agency. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should have I should have asked this earlier, but I'm going to go back to it anyway. Let's talk for a second about friction points and how they fit into the picture. How because when you're trying to convert, a friction point is like your worst enemy. I'm assuming. How do you identify them? How do you address them? Yeah, cool. So friction points are an interesting one. They they fall under something that we do internally called heuristic analysis. So heuristic analysis is kind of um, an analysis that uses experience based techniques for problem solving. So no, I was going to jump in one, one quick second and just say yeah, for those of my SEO folks, a friction point is very similar to a pain point to a certain extent, right? You have a problem. What is, what is the user dealing? What sort of problem are they facing? Except this is a little bit more, you know, what? why don't you take it away? What's a friction point before we get started? Yeah, completely right. So a friction yeah. point is exactly what you just said. It's something that makes it difficult for you to progress forward in a user experience, basically. So it's a point that um, you as a user on a website 
cause a little bit of tension and psychologically remove you from the website. So that means you may very well avert the the friction. You may very well just leave the website completely, or right. it makes it really difficult for you to progress forward, leaving a, almost a sour taste. In it's a pain point that you created yourself, Correct. as opposed to a user Correct. has a pain point. Yeah. Okay. That's how I think about it. Yeah. So, so it sort of falls under our heuristic analysis I guess, banner, which basically means when we look at a website, we're looking for frictions, distractions, motivations, and relevance to get a psychological understanding of what the user is experiencing or what they're trying to experience. And finding these comes down to, honestly, a lot of experience. I mean, we've looked at thousands of websites and understanding the patterns of human behavior really help here. But here's here's something that's a really quick tip for everybody because everybody's so obsessed with their websites. And I know that, you know, SEO paid, whatever it is, People look at their website daily and are trying to make optimizations and they're trying to make the best of it. Here's a really good tip. Get someone who isn't invested in your business. Take anybody else. Get your, you know, a family member. Get a friend to have a look at the, the website and get them just to go through like a normal transaction or a normal um, experience on the website and let them give you some feedback. I mean, we do user testing and we do surveys but and we'll get to those a bit later. But this is just a good way to get some feedback from somebody who isn't experienced on your website to tell you if they have any friction points or if anything is confusing or if they're motivated by one thing that you weren't even trying to promote. So it's probably one of those things that you just need to get fresh eyes on it. And I think a lot of the time, you know, the answer is right in front of you. You're just so attached to your own website that you can't really push past some of the bias that you've got towards it. So try and get somebody else to have a look at it before you um, make any judgment. That's a, that's a great point. And so I, I wanted to ask you, how do you qualitatively get some information on your conversions? Of course, I'm sure there's a ton of information you can get. We Rank Ranger have our own data. You can offer you on how you're converting, right? You've, from Google Analytics to whatever you could possibly think of, there's a ton of qualitative, sorry, quantitative data out there. But qualitatively, how do you get some information on this? And yeah, okay, asking somebody is a great way to do that. But I'm wondering when you do something like that or when you do a survey, how do you set it up in a way that you'll be successful? For example, I know like in political surveys, the way you word the question can either stimulate one response or another response, and that can either hurt you or inadvertently, I'm sorry, they can either help you or inadvertently hurt you because you didn't really intend for the user to think of your question in a certain way, and now you're stuck with their answers. Yeah, exactly. It's a really cool question because it's one of my favorite parts of what we do in CRO. It's pretty, it's fun. I mean, a lot of people think data is pretty boring, but what we do with surveying and user testing is actually quite enjoyable because you get some really cool opinions from people that really help you sort of open up your opinions of a website. So uh, a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking CRO is just like a technical analysis in the back end. You're looking at Google Analytics or whatever other tools, um, potentially heat maps or something like that as well. But it's, it's vital that you get this qualitative uh, stuff to help your conversions because at the end of the day, you've got a real life human being looking at your website, trying to make decisions. So you need that, you know, that human nature to it. So there are a couple of ways that I just touched on there. So surveys, so they're normally a pretty reliable method of getting information. There's multiple ways you can do surveys. There's thousands of different pop-up survey programs that you can install on your website. Uh, they can be triggered at certain parts of the, the customer's journey. So you can ask them just before they make a purchase. You can make it after the purchase. You can make it on the home page. It just depends where you want to do that. Um, there's actually apps out there at the moment that get you to opt into a phone call. So a representative of the business can actually call you and go through some stuff. So that's a pretty interesting way because you can get a little bit more in-depth answers to what you're, um, what you're asking. And the idea of surveys is exactly that. You're supposed to ask how they're feeling about the experience, especially when they're involved in it as they are right now. And um, the idea is to get as much, I guess, qualitative data as you possibly can to then pass on 
and see if it supports the the theories or the hypothesis that you've made originally. Um, and then user testing. So it's getting a group of people who fit the buyer persona of a business to complete some set tasks for them and then offer feedback from doing that. We personally do a lot of remote user testing. It's, it's really difficult to get a core group of people together in a room. And when you're in, in person, there are so many factors that can sort of poison the data i mean like when you're sitting around a group of people and you kind of ask them a particular question you might have a tone that encourages them to answer one way versus another way so we try our best to try and prevent that kind of thing so for example we we outsource um most of our stuff to user feel or testmate which are really good programs they basically find people that figure out oh well sorry that people are relevant to the website and people that would be potentially interested in the product we give them a list of questions and then, or questions and actions, and then we basically ask them feedback. And then to answer your question about that, yes. So you need to know how to sort of ask that audience the questions in the right way so that you're not um, hurting your data. And it's a really good question. My, my dad's a psychologist and he always told me that bad data is worse than no data at all, which is fairly good. And he'll be absolutely wrapped that he just got a mention on this. So <laughs> shout out to that. Just send me his Twitter <laughs> handle. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, <laughs> So it's really important when you consider what you're asking in a survey and how you, how you, I guess, question it. So I've got a few things that I try and do when we, we run a CRO test or a survey. We try and write questions that are really simple and to the point. You don't want to be too expansive because that almost allures to a particular direction you want to take the user or asking them to answer in a certain way. So we're very um, succinct with how, what we ask them. We try and use words with clear meanings. So I know that sounds a bit uppity but the idea is that we're trying, <laughs> no, we're, we're trying not to confuse them we want to get the most transparent answer we possibly can so using words with clear meanings just means there's no way that they can get confused by that uh, we limit how many ranking type questions there are so you know you might get a question that's like how did you find your experience rank from one to five five being great we try and limit those because they are pretty um they, they're pretty unreliable questions it's good to throw one or two in there just to see what they're feeling and they're quite easy to answer but you don't want too many of them one of the best ones is don't offer double-barreled uh, double questions. So I'll give you a really good one. How easy was it to complete your transaction and did you use a coupon code? Like they're just two completely right. different questions. They don't need to be combined. Just separate them, make sure that you get one answer for one and then one answer for the other. We always try and offer an out to questions that don't necessarily apply to everybody. So you may very well just get asked a question that you haven't achieved or that you haven't done on the website. And then if you're forced to answer, it just fudges the data again. So we try and make sure that if you haven't actually done that process or it's not something that applies to you, you don't have to answer it. So you can either say something like other and let them type in something themselves, or you can just say this does not apply or whatever you want to do. And then probably the last one that I would say is just make recall easy. So recall is when you're thinking back to what you've just done. If somebody's just spent 20 minutes doing a user test and then you ask them the first thing that they did, it's really difficult for them to go back and think, oh God, what did I even do on the homepage? I can't remember. Try and make it so that your questions don't require too much recall and so that they're really straightforward for the user. That's Those are probably the best tips that I've got. And as as clean as you can get the survey data, the better it is for, the, for you on the other side. How long do you recommend a survey be? Because okay, when I used to teach, which was a million years ago, so we used to get survey after survey, I think like 25 to 100 questions trying to improve our teaching practice. And I would just click on whatever box it was. I, I was I was done after question like three because I have no patience. But um, in general, though, how long how long should a survey be? 
I'm thinking back to when I used to do back at school. I used to have um, multi-choice questions, and at one point you would just go ACDC, ACDC, right? Because <laughs> you like the ACDC. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Right. For for our purposes, we try to do use uh, sorry surveys as short as possible, so we don't like them to take any more than five to ten minutes. The other thing you've got to consider on the other side is most of the time you're paying or you're rewarding people for doing these so i don't want to have to reward somebody for an hour's worth of work especially when you know as an agency we're paying for a coupon or for a um, gift card somewhere for them to to do this so you try and make it anywhere from five to ten minutes ten minutes would only be for something that's super involved if it was a really intense website with lots of products um, or a really, really long process from start to finish on a lead gen website. But yeah, five minutes would be enough for me. You want short and sharp, straight to the point. Right, makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you, because I'm assuming that as a, as a conversion specialist, you're going to do a lot of A-B testing. I'm just assuming. I know where I got that from. But um, <laughs> <laughs> when, when you're doing A-B testing, what's important to consider when you're setting up your parameters? Yeah, cool. So when we do... AB split testing. So just so you get an idea, all of the stuff that we've just spoken about there, heuristic analysis, technical analysis, all of that, basically that's our, our CRO analysis prior to doing anything. So what that does is it gives us insights. And then based on those insights, we can create a hypothesis. So that's pretty much where we're up to now. And then you're saying, what are the parameters you set up before an AB split test? And for those who don't know, I mean, AB split testing is having two different versions of something delivered to the same audience and then finding out which one performs better. And, you know, in our field, that means one will have a better conversion rate than the other most of the time. So what you need to do is a few really important things. Setting up proper goal tracking or e-commerce tracking is vital. If you don't have your goals tracking properly, it's the first thing we do. Um, And that's talking to the client and understanding exactly what the goal is. If you've got goals that haven't been edited in there for two years or goals that are no longer relevant, all of a sudden your data is just completely all over the place. So you need to make sure that your goal tracking is completely set up as best as you possibly can. And then the other thing is that you've also got to have a look whether or not your website actually has enough traffic to be able to AB split test. So a lot of people jump in and they're like, cool, I'll just start AB split testing. Well, it doesn't actually apply to everybody because there's something that we'll touch on shortly um, called statistical significance, but you need to make sure that you've got enough traffic on there to actually get a result from these split tests. So I'll give you an example. Five to 10 conversions per week on a lead gen website is considered a low traffic website. So we don't normally take them on board and do proper AB split testing. Um, a thousand or less visitors per week, a low traffic website and a hundred transactions or less per month is considered a low volume website. So if you're under those there, um, you don't necessarily fall into a category where we can do healthy AB split testing. There are different methods that we can do for you. So don't stress. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you. Okay. Yeah, but um. Those are normally websites that we would say, look, we're probably going to have to do this slightly differently. So you need to make sure that you've actually got enough traffic, enough transactions or enough leads coming through to be able to do A-B split testing. So combining those two together, those are probably the two main parameters. And then there's a bunch of other stuff. We need to make sure that the website is fully functional. We need to implement all of the code in the back end. I mean, those are all things that are kind of are relevant to you. That's just something as an agency. But if you get those two sorted um, first thing up, then yeah, you're looking pretty good. So again, you do your A-B testing. I'm assuming you're one of these sites that qualify. By the way, what do you do if you don't qualify to be a good A-B tester? There's plenty of other little things that we can do. I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the cool little methods that we can do and something that people should try themselves. If you don't have Google Analytics set up on your website, like go do it now. Like, <laughs> I, I like five minutes ago. Google, 
oh, you need Google Analytics. I understand that there's Shopify websites and they have their own analytics and stuff like that. But like we, we trust Google's data at the end of the day. We're trying to get Google's traffic. So I think it's really important that you get Google Analytics. Plus, it's so easy to set up goals and e-commerce tracking. Anyway, the idea is that you can actually get Google Analytics. And for those who don't know, there's a little tiny bar at the bottom of your traffic that's called annotate. So you can actually create annotations. And what you can do um, to sort of start your A-B split testing is you can do some changes on your website. Let's just say you want to change the hero banner with a new call to action on your homepage. So straight away, you can change that over one day. You can annotate in Google Analytics and say, changed home banner. And then what you can do is you can look at the data 30 days after and 30 days before, and you can compare that data. That's just a really, really easy way to compare slight A-B uh, split testing. There are so many factors around that. I mean, you need to make sure that you're not getting affected by seasonality. You might have had a traffic spike. So be be sensible with it, but that's a good way of just testing little elements of your website to be able to understand how they're performing. Okay, so now let's say, you, let's say you've done your A-B split testing. How do you analyze your results? Like what do you consider to be important? What do you ignore? How do you discern what's something to focus on, what's not something to focus on, what's to throw away and what's to keep? Yeah, so I mean, you know, when you're doing conversion rate optimization, the main thing is conversion rate. So you're looking at your <laughs> conversion rate pretty straightforward. But I mean, it's a, it's still a really, really relevant question because just because your conversion rate is improved doesn't mean that there aren't so many other elements that you should be looking at. I just touched on uh, statistical significance before. So something that you need to look at after you've done A-B split testing is you actually need to look at whether or not there was statistical significance in your test. So for those who don't know what that term means... It's, it's kind of the likelihood that the difference in conversion rates between given variations and the baseline is not due to like random chance or, you know, a, a variable coming through. So um, it really, it reflects like the tolerance and the confidence level that you, that somebody has in your test. So if you're running an AB uh, test, I suppose, and you've got a significant level of 95%, that means that you can be 95% confident that the observed results are real and they're not caused by a random you know, alternative in the data. We try and achieve 95% for all of our tests. I think that's pretty much rule of thumb in the industry. You're trying to get 95 to 100% so that you can understand that the test is completely significant. In saying that, there are cases where you know, like 90 plus is kind of like, well, we, we, I think we've pretty much achieved this. And, you know, I, I, there definitely would be a little bit of contention in the industry of people saying that. But I think that 90% basically means that you haven't got an element of randomness within your testing and you can be pretty safe to say that it's a, it's a good test. So, you know, whatever tool you're using, Optimizely, VWO, we use convert.com. They'll all give you a significance level at the end of your test. So you can, you can look at that straight away and make sure that the test hasn't been random or it's got a big enough significance level for you to have achieved a proper result. And then probably the other things, like there are so many other little pieces of data that you can look into. Um, is the test performing differently for new or returning visitors versus, um, you know, the existing traffic you have? Uh, does a variation work particularly well for particular traffic sources like we were talking about before? Do, does SEO convert differently to how ads does? Just because this conversion rate has improved across the board it may not have improved for all your traffic sources so you've got to have a look at that is a variation performing particularly poorly in certain browsers certain devices could there be a bug could something be going on with particular windows so you've got to look at as much data as you possibly can because it's not always black and white it's not always i'm converting better this is great 
It could also be big bits where you're converting extremely well on one browser and you go back and have a look and that browser hasn't been converting at all prior to this test. So you just need to go back and have a look at all those little little different elements. Love that. I really love that. Um, so before we um, move on to another little bit that I have, I, I want to ask you, I want to talk about tactics. I want to talk about theory because I love both. When it comes to, all right, let's get into some, I guess, some specifics, right? What are some techniques that work? What have you seen out there? That, and and I, you've given us a lot of great cases already, so I don't want to overload you. But if you have something for us, if you have something, a technique that you've seen work or, or not work, what strategies, what tactics work when considering conversions? I'm, I'm not going to lie. I have case studies coming out the wazoo. I can get, nice. I can give you a hundred more right here, right now. But I got a really good one for you, so... I'll go through um, the exact things that we did for a particular client and I'll even give them in the steps that we took it. So we have a, um, a vintage bike company here in Australia, really lovely guys. Again, I can't give their name, but um, basically vintage men's and women's bikes, some scooters, um, some accessories on top of that. So they came to us with a conversion rate from memory of, um, I think it was about 0.68 or something like that. And they were kind of like, we need to improve, which is fair enough. So um, basically we went through the technical analysis, which is the first element that we do. We found that their mobile conversions were 0.5 as opposed to 0.82 on desktop. So that's a big concern straight away. We found out, as I mentioned to you earlier, their site search was converting at 0.55% um, with visitors not using the site search bar and then they were converting at 2.33% for people that were using the site search bar. So straight oh, away nice. we said, can we make it better? And then when they first came to us, they had a site speed or a load speed of about 12 seconds and we straight away said, cool, we want to get that um, sub six that's seconds. All, that's like forever. Oh, it's that's crazy. a long time. And, and it, it wasn't a big website. I mean, it's a Magento website, so it was a bit clunky, but there were so many things in the back end. That there were celebrities that got divor- married and divorced in that time. Well, no, and exactly that's 12 right. seconds. And then remarried again. <laughs> not not so many in Australia, but definitely over there. <laughs> that's our thing. But All then right. as, we, as we were talking about before, heuristic analysis. So we had a little bit of a look and probably the biggest friction point that we could see on the website was they had a real em- emphasis on their physical store locations. So this is an e-commerce website. Their main goal is to make sales they were pushing all of their traffic to go to a store. And then they were also mentioning that if you went to a store, you didn't have to pay shipping. So I'm sitting there going, well, hang on, you want people to buy from here. You've got to raise your unique sales propositions. Don't direct them elsewhere. So that was a really weird one. The other one was also, they were mentioning free shipping over $75 for most purchases. So they said most and bolded it. So they said some of the purchases out there, um, actually still incurred a fee, even if it was a, over a $75 purchase. So we straight away just said, no, just yeah, free shipping all around. Right. You can, you can wear the cost, especially when their, um, their average basket size was about $200. Like it just didn't make sense. None of it added up. So heuristic analysis, we looked at those. We did some heat mapping. So we use Hotjar. There's plenty of others out there, Crazy Egg, for example. But we did some heat mapping. And we found out that their price filtering was really, really strange. So what they did was they filtered the prices of their products based on the cheapest to the most expensive on every single page. And that doesn't mean that the cheapest is the most popular. As a matter of fact, we found quite the opposite. The cheapest tended to be one of the least popular products. So everybody was seeing the rubbish at the top. Sorry, not rubbish. They're all great. <laughs> but the, the entry-level stuff at the top, and then they had to scroll down to get to the more important stuff. Um, and we also noticed that nobody was using the wish list section. So literally of the 20,000 users that we looked at for a month, 
not one person used their wish list, wish list section. So straight away with heat mapping, we were able to identify that that was redundant. Um, we moved on to user testing. So the users came back to us with some feedback that the menu navigation was weird. Within the actual menu navigation, they had um, something advertising Afterpay and another one advertising gift cards. And it took up about half of the menu navigation and the user was, was saying, that's great that you want to promote those two, but we couldn't find our products because it had taken up all that really prime real estate. So they were saying that's really confusing for us. And then the other one was that over half the users didn't even trust the checkout. So they were trying to get through the purchase on the website and it looked a little bit scammy. They didn't have any trust icons or checkout badges on there. So they were a little bit like, mm, I, I probably wouldn't go through with a transaction on this website. So that was really interesting feedback. And then qualitative surveys. So we asked um, an audience of about 15 to 20 people, I believe. Um, we did an on-site poll. We were talking about the $75 shipping, which was interesting. They all came back and said, yep, extremely confusing. We don't get it. But we also asked about their live chat functionality. And we found out that 90% of the people that use the live chat weren't responded to in their sessions. So they had a live chat. That's on not good. That's not good at all. So as you can imagine, the users were sitting there going, well, what's going on? So based on all of this, I'll give you a quick summary of what happened. We improved the mobile UX. We increased the size of the search bar. We compressed some images, um, did some cache work. We removed the irrelevant plugins in the back end. Uh, we made it free shipping for all orders. We reduced the vis visibility of the buy from store stuff that they were talking about, updated some price filtering, removed the wish list, removed confusing content from the menu, improved the checkout page um, and added trust badges on there, uh, made the client responsible for looking after the live chat and they actually hired one staff member who was a marketing coordinator who then looked after it there forward. And based on all of that, we were able to improve their conversion rate from 0.62 to 0.82, which doesn't sound like a massive leap, but 32% increase in conversion rate meant 45% increase in transactions, and that resulted in a further $362,000 a year. Wow, that's amazing. So, that's you know amazing. what I mean? Like, it, it, it sounds like a process. It sounds like a lot of stuff, and you're sitting there going, all right, all right, just get to the crux of it. Well, that's it, 360K for two months analysis and one month implementation. I'm curious, at, at this point in your career, if you see, if some, you get a new site, someone comes in, can you look at it like in three seconds and know, okay, this is the problem, that's the problem, that's the problem? You do. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not. I'm not trying to say you shouldn't charge for your your surveys and your your prolific analysis. You should definitely do that. But I'm saying you got to know at a certain bike when you when you see like okay, there's no search bar. Or you see like okay, there's no trust icons. Or you see, wow, I just tried to chat with somebody and no one replied for three hours. That's um, interesting. It's, it's concerning. It's a bit of a bug. You kind of look at websites, and I'm so judgmental of everything now. I mean, I own a few websites myself, and I'm so overly critical of myself that it gets to a point where you're just like, why do I even bother having it on there? So when somebody comes to me with a website and they go, you know, what can we do? Yeah, the, the mind keeps racing. And just a few really quick ones for you um, and for the audience, because I think they're really beneficial. One of the easiest things that you can possibly do as a business is just reassess, is your message getting across in the first five seconds that I come to this website because so many businesses come to us and go, you know, I think my page speed is awful. I'm not sure if my call to action is up to scratch. I don't know if this checkout process is going to work. And we look at the, the first thing that's said on the homepage banner and most of the time they don't explain what they do. So we had a client that does um, like kind of marketing, I guess, like direct mail marketing, automated marketing, 
And on their homepage, they didn't mention the word marketing once. Wow. So we're, we're sitting there going, it's fantastic that you've got all these cool buzzwords in there and that you've got really cool imagery and a really cool banner and everything looks fantastic. But the audience gets there and has no idea what you deliver <laughs> as a service. So straight away, the alarm bells are ringing for them. They're going, oh, God, where do I go? I don't know what to do. Uh, and then the easiest thing I'm, you know, in day-to-day -day is just to jump off and go find somebody else right. that does the same thing. So I think that's one of the major things that I would do. But here's another one for you, and it is my least favorite thing in the world, and I hope to God there's some other CRO experts out there that join me, um, sliders. Sliding banners on a homepage convert horribly. Really? Horribly. Okay. Uh, it, it is the number one thing that happens to me. And every single time a slider comes in, it's like a running joke in the office. They all yell out and they go, Dave, slider. And I just <laughs> cringe. But here's the thing. When, when you get to that home page, the main thing that you want to do is you want somebody to be able to identify what you do. And then you want a call to action straight away. You want to know where am I going from here? Am I buying a product? Am I going to a lead inquiry? Am I figuring out what their business does? You know, whatever it is. If you have a slider, you have multiple call to actions all of a sudden. So there's going to be three to five slides going through. But a lot of the time, most people only have a call to action on the first slide and then they've got two or three random slides with just nice imagery on it. It's actually really confusing and your audience just wants to figure out how do I progress to the next stage here? And the slider is a complete opposite. It makes you sit there and watch and makes it slide every, what, three to four seconds and you kind of get distracted and then you're sitting there going, why was I even on this website in the first place? So <laughs> really probably my least favorite thing. If, a, if you've got a slider on your website, just replace it with a still image, just a hero banner with a really pronounced call to action, a really good solid call to action. And don't just say, find out more. Find out more is not a cool call to action. That's boring. <laughs> Something along the lines of, you know, Morty's podcast subscribe today you know like something like right. that we need, to, we need to really invoke these guys to make a decision so that's probably my biggest one there so for your birthday should people buy you sliders oh man <laughs> the, amount of, um, the amount of slider images that get sent across to me daily it's crazy but I get it there's so many templates out there on Shopify WordPress whatever you're yeah that's, that's probably what it is and it looks cool and I get more images images are great I, yeah that's right, you know, and, and that's great. I love that you've got awesome images on there, but please try it. If you can go do exactly what I said with Google Analytics, remove your slider, annotate it on GA, I'd be surprised if you guys didn't see an uptick in conversions every, Very every cool. single time. Okay, so now I got to get to the theory side of this, okay? How much of CRO exists beyond the page? In other words, I'm trying to ask you, what do you think the essence and the theoretical basis of what is CRO? To you, what is what does CRO mean to you? But I, I mean to say, like in, in, in reality, okay, is it audience research? Is it leads? Is it targeting? Is it testing UX? Is it going through um, you know, a new UI and so forth and so forth and so forth? Where is the crux of CRO? Yeah, you know, as somebody that does CRO, I feel like I should have a better grasp on this question. But every single time somebody asks me, I think to myself, I'm like, God, we we still don't know. We're so far off, and especially over here in Australia, you guys in the US have it really down pat, but where a little bit behind the eight ball, but th there's so many elements to it. And I guess my, my, probably my best answer would be back to what I was talking about before CRO or conversion rate optimization isn't conversion rate optimization. It's business, business revenue optimization. So at the end of the day, it is a holistic view of everything that we're trying to do. And I actually hate the word holistic, but it really is. It, in, it encompasses everything that we are trying to do as a business, anything from, your branding, do they trust your website? Do they trust the product that you're trying to bring across? I mean, at the end of the day, you could have the most brilliantly convertible website in the whole entire world. 
and you could have a horrible product that nobody wants to buy and therefore your conversions are gone. It comes down to you as a business. And in my opinion, um, conversion rate optimization and conversions in general are just an assessment of how your business is perceived by the world and by your audience. So yes, um, you know, your conversions can be dictated by the types of traffic you bring in. Yes, there are alternative factors that will impact it and contribute to poor or better conversions. But in a nutshell, the amount of conversion your website gets is a representation of how well you understand your market and audience from uh, you know a, a larger perspective and then based on how well you understand them you should be able to craft that in terms of leads in terms of the targeting in terms of the ux elements on the website you should be able to you should be able to craft exactly what they want to see so audience research is pivotal it's it's the over encompassing thing that you need to understand to be able to promote the best product and the best service and the best website to your audience. But then all of those elements involve, you know, all the stuff that we went through in the CRO analysis, making sure that everything goes through smoothly and that people have a systematic process through your website. That's really what CRO is. We need to make it as easy to convert on a website as possible when you break it down to it. It is a funny thing about, I'll call it the digital arts, whether it be SEO or SEM or CRO or people, whatever it is. We, we get overly specific with each science and it creates a sort of like tunnel vision, right? And 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 it, it one it precludes other areas like CRO or PPC, whatever it is, from coming to the picture. You just focus on your little world, and it also it forces or it creates this dynamic where we we define the science or the art of SEO or the science of SEO or of CRO, whatever it is, by certain metrics, by certain definable attributes, and you really lose the whole character of what the actual endeavor that you're doing is. So it's good to see that happens in CRO, not just SEO. So great. Thank you for making me feel better. Well, you're, you're spot on because, you know, SEO is going down the path of the user experience. At the end of the day, Google wants to promote the best experience. Right, but you have to consider the same thing. You're considering your audience, you're targeting their intent, what they want, how they, how they, how they arrive at a site, what they do to get to a site, what speaks to them. It's really the same thing. Just that's from another angle. And I think that's where people probably break down in this relationship between CRO and everything else. CRO and SEO go hand in hand in the terms that they want to promote the best experience for their users as possible, just in slightly different mechanics. Same as Google Ads, which, you know, we're being incentivized to be able to use Google Ads um, with quality scores and so forth to be able to make it so that the user has a better experience. Same with email marketing, same with any element that you're trying to draw traffic to your product or service and sell it. It is all about the user in the long run. So that's what it comes down to in CRO as well. Yep. Okay. Thank you very much for that. So now that we've done that, I have this little bit that I do. If you were a listener of this show, you know it's time for optimize or disavow it. And that means I'm going to give you either two really good options and you're stuck choosing you know, one good option over another good option and that's hard. Or you're stuck choosing one terrible option over another terrible option and that's also hard. So this is a Dave Hyman version of optimize it or disavow it. So when considering CRO, I'm going to give you a choice in two different things. And you can't, it's not, it depends. I mean, you could say it depends, but that's a cop out. <laughs> it's one over the other. It's, it's zero sum and that's it, right? And either it's what? Going with a site that has a terrible load time, but great CTAs, or a site that has a wonderful, it's quick, it's fast, it's efficient, but the CTAs suck, for lack of a better word. Which one is the lesser oh. of two evils? All right. So full transparency to all the listeners. Um, I've had a full week to think of this. More to get this <laughs> to me. 
I said before we started the podcast, I still haven't come up with an answer. And then I foolishly said, I'll just think of it on the spot. Um, oh, God, I don't want either of them, but I can't be a cop out. So let's go with this. Terrible load time or terrible call to actions. Look, as I said before, terrible load times are crippling for a website. But if somebody desperately wants to get through to your product or your um, service offering, they'll push through it most of the time. I mean, if we're talking like a 50 second load time, that means that it's completely done, then obviously they can't get through to the website. But if we're talking okay, fine, fair, just fair. really bad load time that gets them through there eventually, and then incredible call to actions, I'll take that over bad call to actions because I might get the speediest website in the world and with no call to action, which I presume if they haven't got a good call to action, they probably haven't got any good messaging on there, which means that their copies all over the place, which means that they may very well not have an understanding of what their audience wants. I think you're going to basically have this incredibly well-performed car that can't drive on the street. Right, <laughs> you know, with, like and with it, no trust either. Yeah, correct. I think people are just going to land on a website really quickly and they're not going to understand where they've landed and they're going to be just as fast to bounce off. So that would be my go. I will take the terrible load time, even though that kills me and hurts my soul. <laughs> and I'll, I'll take really good call to actions any day. And, you know, I, I it like goes it. Completely, it goes completely against everything in CRO, but we'll go with it. So, so basically you're saying that you don't need to worry about your page speed. Your load time doesn't make any difference. It's worry about your CTA. So I understand it correctly, right? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. All those, all those slow websites out there, you're fine. You're good right. to go. <laughs> Don't waste your time. <laughs> all right, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on. This was fantastic. Again, I love all those cases. Definitely come back on again. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And um, if anybody needs to reach me, add me on LinkedIn, do your thing. I'd love to chat, but thanks again. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. And we are back to your regularly scheduled In Search SEO podcast. I love the examples. He was so good. Okay, very concrete, vivid illustrations. I could go on and on and on. Um, I Nothing beats using good examples. Mm-hmm. Nothing, okay? By the way, a lot of good ideas about how to go about testing and surveys as well. That, of course, brings us to this week's Rank Rangers SEO community question. What's the best way to get qualitative data on what works and doesn't work when trying to get users to convert? Right. So you have so much data out there, so much is available to you, but how do you develop a real sense, a qualitative feel of what's preventing you from converting or what is facilitating your conversions? But I don't mean quantitatively. I mean like a real sense of what's going on. Right, so please look out for the Rank Rangers SEO community question on. It'll be on uh, the Rank Ranger blog that harbors this podcast. It'll be on Twitter. It'll be on Facebook. It'll be on LinkedIn. It'll be everywhere. So please comment, answer. We'd love to hear from you, so we can give you a shout out like we did to Tyler Harvath. So last week, let's jump into last week's question really, really quickly and mm-hmm. see what you guys offered us. Um, last week we asked you with so much new video content being offered on the SERP, how does that impact your SEO strategy? And Tyler said, and he was being a little bit facetious, which is cool. I get it. Um, he said, have a good amount of video content, which is, yes, you need to have video content. In order, it's, a, it's a brilliant point. By the way, you can find Tyler on Twitter. It's at T-Y-L-E-R-B-H-O-R-V-A-T-H. That's at Tyler B. Horvath. I know he was sort of joking. But I'm, the reason why I'm bringing this of all the points is that it makes no one's doing it. And I'm being self-critical here. I should be doing more videos. Mm. Okay. 
we don't realize we don't I, we do real we talk a good talk everyone talks a good talk but it just takes a good amount of time to do everything right right but you really should be focusing on videos if you're not that's all i'm going to say about it so if it's a good reminder that if you're not focusing on videos in terms of your seo strategy it is becoming more and more and more and more and more important right so just make more videos mm-hmm. make them good obviously don't make more bad videos <laughs> right okay I, I feel like we've covered so many topics and ideas that it only makes sense to bombard you all with more because we're, we're generous like that. We are. Yes. So, Sapir, are you ready? Yep. All right. Then hit it with the news. Please. A major Google algorithm update hit the SERP on the 16th with unprecedented levels of rank fluctuations being tracked on the rank risk indexed by the 18th right so um it started on the 16th right by the time you hit the 18th there's like major spike mm-hmm. huge spike of rank fluctuations i dug into it a little bit um we're recording this at the very beginning of the week because we released on tuesday so i was i can't record this later in the week after i really looked at the data so i've looked at the data initially I, I don't see any one niche that stands out here like for example in some of the core updates the last one the june 2019 core update core update speaking too fast the June 2019 core update. YMYL sites, a health site, the health niche, finance niche. I um, saw a little bit more by way of rank fluctuations and some of the other niches. Not so here. It looks like there's, from my, what I can see so far, every niche got hit relatively equally. What you do see, though, what I did see, one trend that I did see was relative to some of the, the last, up, some of the uh, more recent updates. Once you... The top result, the top two results, the top three results, those got, you know, you, those saw rank changes that are sort of consistent with what you generally see during a, a Google update. Once you start looking at the results five through 10, the second half of the page, those saw, those positions saw much uh, greater levels of rank fluctuations than what you normally see during a normal update. So this update was very, very big. I'm still working on a theory. I have an idea. I'm not going to say it now. Maybe next week we'll get into it because I got to see how this all plays out. But I will say that one trend that sticks out is the bottom half of the SERP got hit harder than usual. All right. Um, in terms of sites, I'm still digging into it. I've seen, you know, some people say, oh, low quality sites or sites with bad UI, bad UX. I've seen some good sites get knocked down. I've seen some good sites really get some some bumps up. So I haven't seen a pattern yet among the sites, but I'm very, very much at the early stages of that. So I'll let you know next week, I guess, mm-hmm. or keep a, keep an eye out on my Twitter account. Maybe I'll uh, I'll release something. You never know. It's at Morty Oberstein. Check it out. Follow me. No pressure. Self promotion. Yeah, self promotion. Okay. Item number two. Okay, the bug that had local listings and reviews fading into oblivion has been resolved. Yay! At least that's what Google said. Ooh. SEOs, on the other hand, are still saying that they have not seen many of their listings reappear. Also, the form to reinstate your listings was down for a while as well. Mm. Mm. Uh, SMH, <laughs> right? That's what, what do you right. millennials say. I'm a shaking millennial technically, head. right? Oh, yeah, I'm shaking wow, my good for you. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm cool. Look at me. <laughs> Smiley face emoji. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing, crying face emoji now. It's so funny. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Let's move on. Yes, please. Okay. Go ahead. Google Go says. Google says they made 3,200 changes in 2019. That's a lot of adjustments to the algorithm. Shoo. <laughs> Shoo. <laughs> what are you? Like the, and that's different from 2018 because? Or 2017 Why? because? 
It's, it's not. It's a lot. It is a lot. I'm not saying it's not a lot. I'm just saying like this is not news. No, I'm not putting you down. This was big news in the, in the news. You you are correct for having this mm-hmm. on your list of news. I'm just questioning why it's SEO news to begin with. Okay. Don't you read what they say after every update? Like, hey, why did this happen? We make thousands of changes every day. <laughs> every second we're making thousands upon thousands of changes to the algorithm. Millions of changes. Are you done? Can I move on? Millions of changes. <laughs> okay, lastly, and a very cool one. Google was seen testing a feature that lets you share a Google result. That How is cool. cool is that? Okay, that was cool. That's great. That is cool. That's very cool. <laughs> it's a bit odd though. Like what? what would you what would you share a specific result for? Like here, hey, check out this result I found on the SERP. It was know. pretty rad. <laughs> Some other emoji following that. I I can find use to that. I yeah, okay. I'm sure okay. you could. Like okay. If you like the page, you you went to the page, you saw the page, you would just share the link. Right? I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, it, it is Whatever. cool. It's it cool. is cool. It's it is cool. cool. Okay. Thank you very much for the news. Greatly okay. appreciated. Mm-hmm. Very informative. Very helpful. Very cool. I know. Yeah. Good <laughs> cool stuff. Let me <laughs> share my results with you. <laughs> it's very intimate. Let me share my results with you. Oh, I, wouldn't, I would only share my results with somebody after like the third date at least. You're such a geek. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just speechless right now. Okay. Favorite part of the show. Saving the best for last. Mm-hmm. You know it. It's the fun SEO send-off question. I loved last week's question so much. I hated it. I loved it. Okay. That I had to keep going with this silly nonsense, just like that. As opposed to when these questions are not silly nonsense? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. Okay, here we go. It's going to be magic. Y'all ready? You ready? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> You're so excited. <laughs> I thought I was the one who didn't have any energy today. Okay. <laughs> what would Google's superhero and supervillain name be? Superhero <laughs> and supervillain. What so would his name be? What you're saying is, is that I need to come up with more silly names. Yes, that's right. Sh- just checking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, you understand quite well. Good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know how this ga- <laughs> you know how this game works. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, too well. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, so for a superhero hero, I would go with uh, Wonder Search Engine. Ask me why. Why. Well, obviously, as an homage to the best superhero there is, my girl, Wonder Woman. Because Google deserves nothing but the best, you know? I love Wonder Woman. I love that was one of the, by, I hate the DC movies. <laughs> Same. I didn't, I didn't even see Justice League. I liked League. Aquaman, though. I, did, I, won't, I, I watched Batman vs. Superman. I watched like half of that movie. <laughs> that was awful. I, I'm like, I never watched another DC movie in my entire life. <laughs> ever. But Wonder Woman. But Wonder Woman, okay. I actually watched that. <laughs> I think that came out afterwards, right? Mm. It did. I watched yeah. that anyway because I had to watch that. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. So I am looking awesome. forward to that from to 1984. That was the year I was born. Yeah, yeah. really? That's right. Old. Big brother. Okay, <laughs> okay super villain? Super villain? Uh, for super, no, no. I refuse to give Google a super villain name. Google is, is the hero we all need and love. You hear me? What, last week when I asked you <laughs> what name, what wrestling name would Google use if it were a wrestler? 
And yeah. you're like the world dominator. Could take over the whole world. Now you won't give it a, a, a negative name. Listen, it's like what, it's I just like... want to know what happened in a week's time. <laughs> what happened? Okay, for for a super villain, I'm gonna go with the no clickinator. What? The no clickinator, like the Terminator, but the no clickinator, because <sighs> so many searches are zero mm-hmm. zero click serps. Right. So the no clickinator. Right. Right. Okay. Um. Okay. For for a superhero, Captain Find It. Captain Find It. As homage catchy, to Captain catchy, Planet. Uh... Remember Captain Planet? No. no. Of course not. <laughs> I know Captain America. Go Planet. No. What? Yep. Cartoon Captain Planet. Oh God, I don't. I Captain don't Find It know. is my way of expressing my nostalgic relationship to Captain Planet. So Please Google don't. will be called Captain Find It. I think we should end here. Yes, please. (laughs) Please get me out of here. (laughs) And that will do it for this episode of the In Search SEO Podcast. Don't forget to tune in again next Tuesday for an all-new, fresh episode of the In Search SEO Podcast. Um, Thanks. Thank you. Oh, I forgot. What? It's been In Search because we're all in search of something. Right. Bye.